Hello, everyone, and welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. On today's episode, we will examine songs that were inspired by, if not actually about, the President of the United States as the 70s began, Richard Nixon. But first, thank you for supporting the podcast by A, listening, B, sharing the podcast with others who you think might like it, and C, becoming a patron. You can help pay some bills and keep away the dreaded ads for as little as $1 a month. Just go to ftr70.com and click on any of the episodes, or you can click on the link at the top of the page you're looking for, be a patron, and that will take you to Patreon. It's really easy to do. Richard Nixon was a music fan. He liked to take some of the musicians who visited the White House to the residential floor and show off his stereo equipment and his record collection. Suffice to say, there were no records by the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or Credence Clearwater Revival in his collection. Nixon, who was a pretty good piano player, was a classical music fan. His tastes ran more along the lines of the Boston Pops or perhaps the soundtrack to Oklahoma. In fact, not only was Nixon not a popular music fan, he blamed the pop and rock music of the mid to late 60s for drug use in America's youth. Vice President Spiro Agnew became the unofficial anti-drug, anti-pop music surrogate for Nixon, and he gave a speech to his fellow Republicans in that bastion of purity, Las Vegas, Nevada, on September 14, 1970, to announce that pop music and movies were, quote, brainwashing baby baby boomers into a drug culture and, quote, a depressing lifestyle of conformity that has neither life nor style. It did not stop there. About a month later, Nixon hosted a conference at the White House for radio industry executives called the White House Conference for Drugs in the Radio Industry. I want to take a moment and thank Jack Doyle, who has a wonderfully researched article on Grace Slick on the website Pop History Dig for the information on what resulted from that conference and the song that really got to Nixon and Agnew, White Rabbit. Please check out my show notes on FTR70.com for a link to Jack's wonderful article. Richard Nixon did not tell radio executives that they could or could not play certain songs, but Dean Perch, who was the chairman of the FCC at the time, said that the FCC would look favorably upon stations that avoided playing songs with drug references. That meant songs like White Rabbit, Eight Miles High, Mother's Little Helper were on the no-go list, and some stations from New York to Chicago to Dallas would not play music that seemed to celebrate the drug culture. The point I'm making here is that when Nixon is directly or indirectly named by songwriters as we entered the 70s, they were not just picking on an easy target or shouting into the wind about a guy who really did not care what music was playing on the radio because he was busy with more presidential matters. Because of the way Nixon's presidency ended, it's easy to forget that Nixon was a popular president until he wasn't. He only seems like an easy target because we're looking backwards. We know what happens. 
Nixon cruised into a second term in 1972. The man won 520 electoral votes to George McGovern's 17. His average popularity rating in his first term was around 56%, which wasn't as good as Kennedy or Johnson, but it was better than most of the guys that will follow him. Grace Slick was 28 years old when she wrote White Rabbit in 1967. Was it about drugs? Of course it was about drugs. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small. What else would it be about? Two years later, in September 1969, Nixon announced the launch of Operation Intercept, which amounted to inspections at the Mexican border. The intent was to stop marijuana from being transported into the U.S. with a side dish of criminalizing black people and hippies and showing Mexico who was boss, which was some red meat for Nixon's base. Not many drugs were found, but a lot of Mexicans lost their jobs because of the huge traffic jams at the border, and a whole lot of travelers were pissed off, so Nixon declared a victory and ended it. Grace Slick had something to say about all of this in a song called Mexico, released in May 1970. She wrote, But Mexico is under the thumb of a man we called Richard, and he's come to call himself king, but he's a small-headed man, and he doesn't know a thing about how to deal for you. Let's listen to a bit of Mexico by Jefferson Airplane from May 1970, taking on Richard Nixon's Operation Intercept. Twins of the trade come to the poet's room Talking about the problems of belief And yes, it'll be back soon There used to be times of gold and green Coming up here from Mexico It was not a hit. It was never going to get any traction on the radio, although it's not a bad song. But in May 1970, there would be another song, anti-Nixon song, that would get some traction. A lot of it. When Neil Young wrote Ohio, and specifically named Nixon in the song, David Crosby said it was the bravest thing he had seen in music. Ohio was a response to the Ohio National Guard shooting 12 unarmed students on the campus of Kent State University on May 4, 1970. To review why Young would blame Nixon for this, we have to go back to Nixon's 1968 presidential campaign. When Richard Nixon ran for re-election in 68, he promised that he would end American involvement in what many viewed as a civil war in Vietnam. It did seem as if he was going to make good on that promise, as U.S. involvement seemed to be in the process of being scaled back by 1970. That's why so many people were pissed off when on April 30, 1970, Nixon announced that he had authorized a preemptive strike in Cambodia two days earlier to allow troops from South Vietnam to cross into Cambodia. 
He justified this by saying that North Vietnam was shuttling supplies into South Vietnam through Cambodia, what many people did not realize even though the New York Times had reported on a secret bombing campaign in May 1969, is that the U.S. had already been bombing the hell out of Cambodia. For a year, the U.S. was carpet bombing Cambodia, and when all was said and done, after four years of this, 540,000 tons of bombs had been dropped on Cambodia. We should also keep in mind that Nixon lied to Congress when the bombing campaign began because Cambodia was neutral, and Congress would have had some questions that he did not want to answer. Kent State was a politically active campus in the midst of a rather conservative area. That's true for a lot of college campuses across the country. And the escalation of the war prompted more protests. April 30th, 1970, was a Thursday. May 1st was a Friday. And on that day, some students buried a copy of the Constitution as a symbolic protest. The fact that many young people, whether they were students or not, I mean, there were a lot of townies involved in this too, gathered in Kent and hung around the bars and that sort of thing. That was There was nothing alarming or unusual about that. A lot of people gathered in the streets and they did some tricks on their bikes and a trash can was set on fire. And as the night wore on, there were reports that two police cars were hit with beer bottles and, and some buildings were hit with beer bottles too. So some folks were being disorderly, but where things got dicey, is when the Ohio National Guard was called in because the city and campus police were not able to respond to some of this disorderly behavior in a timely manner. The protests that followed on Saturday, Sunday, and and Monday were largely because students felt harassed by the National Guard that was, in their view, occupying their campus. By Monday, May 4th, Ohio Governor James Rhodes had declared a state of emergency 1,200 National Guard members were in and around the campus of Kent State, and a protest was scheduled for noon at the Victory Bell. Keep in mind, many of the students on campus were there to go to class. In fact, most were there to go to class, not to protest. Some stopped and watched the protest. So there were about 500 in total that were protesting, twice as many that were gathered around cheering them on, and the rest were just watching it all go down. By now, the photos of the Ohio National Guard dressed in full riot gear and pointing M1 rifles with bayonets at the unarmed students are pretty well known. You can check out my show notes on FTR70.com for some of those photos. The reason that Troop G of the Ohio National Guard knelt and pointed their weapons at the students is simple. They were ordered to do so as a show of force to try to intimidate the students. Why, members of Troop G, a short time later, turned in unison to face the parking lot of Prentice Hall at Kent State University and began firing into the crowd, that we have no clear answer for. We do know that for 13 seconds, soldiers fired on unarmed civilians, sending many students ducking for cover. William Schroeder, 390 feet away, was killed. Sanda Scheuer, 390 feet away, was killed. Jeffrey Miller, 263 feet away, shot through the mouth and killed. Allison Krauss, who tried to take cover 343 feet away, was shot and killed. Nine others were wounded, including Dean Kaler, who was 300 feet away, and he was permanently paralyzed from his gunshot wound. The student who was farthest away was 750 feet away. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young had just released the single Teach Your Children when the protests at Kent State began. 
teach your p- children is the epitome of early 70s sing-along folk about doing better for the next generation. Their single Woodstock was already in heavy radio rotation and was kind of lurking around the top 10 the week of the protests and the shooting. Normally, a band wants to time the release of their singles so that a new one comes out as another one is fading out of the top 40, but that's not going to be the case for the song Ohio. David Crosby was the one who showed Neil Young the Kent State photo spread in Life magazine. It took Neil about an hour to write the response, and it took one line for Young to focus on his target, Richard Nixon. Tin Soldiers and Nixon's Coming were finally on our own, This summer, I hear the drumming, four dead in Ohio. David Crosby called Graham Nash and the band assembled in Los Angeles and recorded the song. Amit Erdogan, the head of Atlantic Records, took that record and within 10 days that record was on the streets in a sleeve with the text of Article 1 of the First Amendment, the amendment guaranteeing the right to peaceably assemble. Chrissy Hind, who would go on, of course, to have her own band, The Pretenders, said that when that song came out, she was glad She was glad that Neil Young was offering to be the voice for the students who were still in shock and finishing out the semester from home and mailing in their assignments. Graham Nash later said, In speaking for ourselves, listeners recognized that we were speaking for them too. Many, many people blamed the students or these outside agitators, including the parents of the victims and other students who witnessed what happened, by the way, For years, students were told that they deserved what happened to them. Ohio did not lead to a flood of anti-Nixon songs or even that many protest songs. In fact, it was kind of the opposite. The song was banned by a lot of AM stations, and AM was the medium for Top 40 radio at that time. Although FM, which was the underground of radio and catered to college students, did play it. Ten years after Kent State, Richard Nixon was up for re-election. On May 28, 1972, a team of bungling burglars headed by G. Gordon Liddy broke into the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. They bugged the phones. Of course, their goal is to get dirt on Democrats and get Nixon back within the back into the White House. Within two weeks, five people were arrested and the White House denied knowing anything about it. Nixon was easily reelected in November, but Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post 
kept following leads and working the story. By January 1973, congressional hearings had begun. Nixon denied, 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 all while offering a million dollars in cash to keep everything under wraps. Tom T. Hall is a great storyteller. Do you remember Harper Valley PTA? It was very much a feminist song that was released in 1968 about a mom telling the Harper Valley PTA to mind their own business about Mrs. Johnson's miniskirt. Tom T. Hall wrote that. In fact, he wrote a lot of hit songs. The mess that was the 1972 election and Watergate inspired Tom, so he wrote a song that pretty much summed up everything, and he called it Watergate Blues. It was never a top 40 record, but it was one of those songs that people always wanted to hear at his live shows. Here's a bit of Tom T. Hall with Watergate Blues from 1973. Down in Miami, McGovern got it all. A strange-looking bunch of folks inside Convention Hall. McGovern said, I need someone to carry the South. They picked poor Tom Eagleton, but folks found him out. That liberal press, they got to know it all. Well, McGovern took Shriver and he started to run. Sarge said, units, let's have a little fun. They ran into trouble almost everywhere they went. There was a big committee to elect the president. I'll tell you now, they were a smooth group. Well, they broke into Watergate and tapped people's phones. The FBI and CIA would not leave folks alone. The people in the White House were bursting with pride. When the votes were all counted, it was a big landslide. The USA bought a new used car. Russia and Vietnam and China were cool. The American press, they could not find any news. So they dug in the Watergate and the further they went, it seemed as if they might just run into the president. You know it was a big shock. USA bought a new used car. That's a, that's a great line. Tom T. Hall with Watergate Blues. Remember, this is 1973, and Nixon is in denial mode. He wasn't fooling Gil Scott Heron either. Gil is considered by many to be the founder of hip-hop, but he never really wanted that title. He was a poetic genius. Some of his records were simply spoken word, kind of like early rap. Sometimes they were kind of jazzy, but always they were thoughtful and they were observant. Sometimes he was kind of funny, too. H2O Gate Blues was recorded in the fall of 1973 and released in 1974. H2O Gate Blues features these lyrics. How much more evidence do the citizens need that the election was sabotaged by trickery and greed. And if this is so, and who we got didn't win, then let's do the whole goddamn election over again. Now, the calls for Nixon to be impeached and or for him to resign grew in 1973. The House of Representatives began impeachment hearings at the end of July. Roy Hammond released Impeach the President a few weeks earlier on June 1st. That Hammond, who was a doo-wop singer in the 50s and a soul singer after that, would release a political funk song in the midst of a political scandal is not that unusual. He was a very politically aware singer and songwriter. In 1971, for example, he wrote an anti-Vietnam War song called Open Letter to the President, which was on the same album called Sex and Soul that had a song about slavery called I Wasn't There, 
but I can feel the pain. Those were recorded for the Mercury label, and the president of Mercury told him that they did not want political songs and that Roy was holding himself back by recording them. So Roy Hammond formed his own record label. For Impeach the President, which is listed as being by the Honey Drippers, it's really Roy and some high school students that he recruited to perform with him. This is Impeach the President. President from 1973 by the Honey Drippers. The other notable thing about this song is that it is one of the most sampled songs ever. Roy had been told for years that other artists were borrowing parts of his song, but he did not know for sure until he heard That's the Way Love Goes by Janet Jackson. He got no money from that. If he had, he would have raked in a lot of cash. The song was re-released on iTunes in 2017, largely because it was being sampled so often with no financial compensation to Roy, who died in 2020. So by 1974, Richard Nixon is ass deep in the Watergate scandal. It's also safe to say that by 1974, many Americans were sick and tired of the government and war and Watergate in hearings. So maybe that's why Stevie Wonder kind of snuck a shot at Nixon into an upbeat dance song that is also dripping with funk. The lyrics are not as biting as Ohio or Impeach the President, but they are direct. We are amazed but not amused by all the things you say that you'll do, though much concerned but not involved with decisions that are made by you. But we are sick and tired of hearing your song telling how you are going to change right from wrong, because if you really want to hear our views, you haven't done nothing. Let's listen to a bit of You Haven't Done Nothing, recorded in the midst of the Watergate scandal by Stevie Wonder.
That's a fun song. You haven't done nothing. It's fun. And I really like uh, the doodle wops in the background. I didn't play it there. Uh, go listen to the whole thing if you own it or go stream it and listen for the Jacksons with that doodle wop in the background. This song is so fun. I don't even realize that I'm protesting. Stevie said that was the point. He said, quote, the best way to get an important and heavy message across is to wrap it up nicely. It's better to try and level out the weight of the lyrics by making the melody lighter. After all, people want to be entertained, which is all right with me. So if you have a catchy melody, instead of making the whole song sound like a lesson, people are more likely to play the tune. They can dance to it and still listen to the lyrics and hopefully think about them. Stevie may have had a point. Many Americans were not in the mood for heavy messages in their pop music. Let's peruse the top 10. The week ending October 5th, 1974, when you haven't done nothing, was at number five. The number one song that week was I Honestly Love You by Olivia Newton-John. Number two, Nothing From Nothing by Billy Preston. Number three, Then Came You by Dionne Warwick and the Spinners. Number four, Beach Baby by First Class. Hey, look, Cheech and Chung. They were in the top 10 that week, too. We're hardly talking about hard-hitting, hard-hitting politics here. Two days after You Haven't Done Nothing was released, this happened. Good evening. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office, where so many decisions have been made that shape the history of this nation. Each time I have done so to discuss with you some matter that I believe affected the national interest. In all the decisions I have made in my public life, I have always tried to do what was best for the nation. Throughout the long and difficult period of Watergate, I have felt it was my duty to persevere, to make every possible effort to complete the term of office to which you elected me. In the past few days, however, it has become evident to me that I no longer have a strong enough political base in the Congress to justify continuing that effort. I would have preferred to carry through to the finish whatever the personal agony it would have involved. And my family unanimously urged me to do so. But the interests of the nation must always come before any personal considerations. From the discussions I have had with congressional and other leaders, I have concluded that because of the Watergate matter, I might not have the support of the Congress that I would consider necessary to back the very difficult decisions and carry out the duties of this office in the way the interests of the nation will require. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress, particularly at this time with problems we face at home and abroad to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication 
would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issues of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. And there you have it for the first time, uh, so far, the only time in American history a president has resigned. He said he was resigning because he lost support of Congress. Yes, uh, he was going to be impeached. No apologies, by the way. Anyway, Nixon leaves. Ford, Gerald Ford, is the new president of the United States. Ford had a bizarre presidency, to say the least. He wasn't elected to either vice president or president, but there he was, and he survived two assassination attempts in two weeks, to boot. On September 8th, 1974, in his first official address to the nation, Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon for any crimes he may have committed because he decided that the country had been through enough and declared that our long national nightmare was over. Not so fast. Now Ford was being accused of being selected to replace Spiro Agnew, who had to resign due to his own income tax bribery scandal dating back to when he was governor of Maryland. So now Ford is seen by many people as part of this whole corrupt system, and his approval ratings tanked, and Americans were still pissed. There were newspaper articles that that dragged him, and there were protesters in front of the White House, and people wanted justice. Gil Scott Heron is back to put those feelings into a spoken word record called We Beg Your Pardon, America, taking Ford to task for letting Nixon off the hook. We'd like to do uh, an idea for you that was related to the H2O-G-A-T-E Watergate Blues. In March of 1973, we wrote the Watergate Blues, and some 17 months later, then-President Nixon resigned. But the story didn't end there, and so we didn't stop there. We have prepared a sequel, and it's called, and it's called, We Beg Your Pardon, America. We beg your pardon because the pardon you gave this time was not yours to give. They call it due process and some people are overdue. We beg your pardon, America. Somebody said, brother man gonna break a window, gonna steal a hubcap, gonna smoke a joint, brother man gonna go to jail. The man who tried to steal America is not in jail. Get caught with a nickel bag, brother man, get caught with a nickel bag, sister lady, on your way to get your hair fixed. You'll do Big Ben, and Big Ben is time, but a man who tried to fix America will not do time. Said they're going to slap his wrist, going to retire him with $850,000, and America was shocked. America leads the world in shocks. 
That's a sample of We Beg Your Pardon America from Gil Scott Heron. Three days after Nixon resigned, David Bowie began writing Young Americans. Young Americans is not an anti-Nixon song so much as it is a song about the mess that was post-Nixon America. When Bowie refers to Nixon, it's in the form of a question. Do you remember your President Nixon? Do you remember you have bills to pay? He seems to be asking if anyone will eventually care that Nixon resigned in disgrace. In other words, will we ever remember how we got here? David Bowie offering his observations on post-Nixon America. That's from 1975. Why don't we have protest songs anymore? I mean songs that become hits. I have a couple theories. One is the Dixie Chick theory, back when they were called the Dixie Chicks. March 2003, and Natalie Maines, the lead singer of the band, announced to the crowd at one of their shows in London that they were ashamed that President George Bush was from Texas. That was in response to the invasion of Iraq. Within a week, country radio stations banned their music, and nearly 20 years later, uh, they in, for, for many people, they have never been able to forgive what Natalie Maine said. The other theory is the social media theory. While a song might be the traditional method for a songwriter to critique the government, now all a songwriter has to do is take out the iPhone and tweet or post a video on Instagram or TikTok. Personally, I prefer the songs. Anyone can tweet. Not anyone can write a song. I am not in the shut up and sing camp, even if a band or a musician has views that are different from mine. I can decide for myself if those views are so repulsive that I will never listen to their music again. But a well-crafted protest song is like a time capsule. We need more of them. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. If you liked what you heard, hey, tell somebody. Make sure you hit follow. Consider being a patron. Also, 
A good review helps others find the show. All my sources are on FTR70.com, and you can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. That's all for now. Bye, everyone. 